word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to gather together once again and reflect on the wonder of Jesus and Christmas. This morning, as we look into your word, show us the mystery and the wonder and the joy that we celebrate, remembering the first coming of Jesus and the joy as we await his sure return. I pray that you'd bless the words of your servant and the ears and the minds and the hearts of your people now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are two events at Christmas time that are sure to happen. The first is that there will be a group of august scholars with great educational degrees who will be presented on TV, and they will take history and bend it like a wax nose to make the case that it was the early Christians and their disappointment over the crucifixion that somehow they managed to turn Jesus into the divine Son of God who was virgin-born, crucified, and risen as the hope for humanity. Now, this year, it was a four-hour special repeated three times on PBS Frontline. And in one shape or another, you can count on hearing this message every Christmas. Now, the second thing that's sure to happen is that Christians will rightly lament how Christmas is so commercialized, how we try to replace the miracle of Christmas with the miracle of consumerism. And it's right to push back against this tidal wave of secularism that wants to keep our public square naked, so to speak, no creatures, no displays of Jesus or anything else. It's right to push back on that. But it's also important to remind people that Jesus is the reason for the season gently so that we are not impacting our joy that we have over the way other people react to Christmas. That's why we've been focusing on Advent each week, lighting first the prophecy candle, then the Bethlehem candle, then the shepherd's candle, and today the angel's candle. We're focusing so that we can remind ourselves of what we have in this miracle of Christmas. We can't control how the world responds to Christmas, but we also can't let it dampen our joy. The colloquialism that came to my mind this week that I said I wouldn't use was, we can't let it be a buzzkill. So that's why when we light that last white candle that represents the pure Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, we do so with joy on Christmas Day. Then the four candles around the Advent wreath will be burning at different heights, and they point us to God's greatest gift, Jesus Christ, who came at Christmas, his first Advent, and our promised joy when he returns on his second Advent to make all things new forever. So this morning I invite you to open your Bible to Genesis 33. I've titled this message, The Greatest Gift. And in this text, we'll find four gifts from God for our delight. 
Christmas can be a stressful time because we focus on what we need to do for others. But in God's Word, we're going to find encouragement by knowing that there are gifts that He has prepared for you and for me. Under this Christmas tree in Genesis 33, we'll find four gifts that God has given, the, given to us. They are the gifts of reconciliation, the gift of recognition, the gift of restoration, and finally, the greatest gift of all, the gift of redemption through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So if you're able, I would invite you to stand as I read a portion of Genesis 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah, likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, well, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessings that is brought to you because God has dwelt graciously with me and because I have enough. And thus he urged him and Esau took it. May God bless the reading of his word to us. Please be seated. We begin with the gift of reconciliation. Now after Jacob has cheated his brother out of his birthright, Esau threatened to kill him. Jacob fled Canaan with only the shirt on his back, and he ran 50 miles that first day. And exhausted, he collapsed at Bethel. And there he dreamed of a ladder between heaven and earth with angels ascending and descending. And God stood beside him. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give you and to your offspring. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Genesis 28, verses 13 through 15. So Jacob at Bethel has seen God and heard his words, but the threat of Esau remained. So Jacob continued running until he arrived at the little city of Haran where his uncle Laban took him in. 
Now, as you recall, he served Laban for 20 years. And despite the constant cheating that Laban always did to him, Jacob became wealthy. By this time, he'd married Laban's two daughters, Leah and Rachel. He'd acquired servants, 11 children, and large flocks of animals. And God had promised to bring Jacob back to the land of Canaan. So in another dream, God appears to Jacob and tells him to return to Canaan. So with family and flocks, Jacob left Haran. Laban pursued him. But after some heated finger pointing, they reached a peaceful agreement. But now, Jacob has to face Esau. And he sent messengers ahead who have returned to tell him, yes, your brother Esau is coming to meet you all right with 400 of his friends who don't look too friendly. So Jacob took his family, he hid them, and then he prepared to spend the night alone. We looked at that last time. That night, man attacked him out of nowhere and wrestled with him until, until morning. And just as the morning was dawning, the man dislocated his hip. And then Jacob, recognizing his adversary's superiority, he asked him for a blessing. And the man blessed him, saying this, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, Jacob is given a new name, Israel, and it means one who has struggled with both man and with God and prevailed. And this is true. By hook, he has managed to escape Esau, and by crook, he has managed to become wealthy, even under the constant cheating of his uncle Laban. And now even he's struggled with God and persisted until he received God's blessing. But this new name doesn't mean that Jacob has changed completely. It doesn't mean his fallen nature is gone. But it is the first indication that he's changing by his bold stand that he now makes in front of his family as Esau and his army approach. He's still Jacob, the broken one, as we see in verse 2. Because in verse 2, he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Now, we know that Jacob has always favored Rachel, and he loves Joseph. He's learned this from his father Isaac. His father Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. He learned it from his mother. Rebekah loved Jacob more than Esau. So carrying on the family tradition, Jacob arranges his family with his beloved Rachel and Joseph in the back so that they can escape if things go wrong with Esau. So Israel is still Jacob, and Jacob still doesn't trust God completely. But now he turns. He's standing at the front of his family. That's a change. He turns to meet Esau and bowing down seven times before him to show his humility. Now Esau's response catches everyone by surprise. Verse 4, 
Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. These words of Esau, it was the action of Esau, reminds us of the father's response to the prodigal son in the parable that Jesus told in Luke 15. Both Esau and the prodigal's father fell on the neck and kissed the one who returned. The kiss indicated forgiveness. And by using the same language that Jesus uses in, in Matthew 15, he wants us to understand that Esau's response here in Genesis 33 is a reconciliation that comes from God. It's God's gift of reconciliation. So this brings us to our first fill-in. God's power can bring reconciliation to damaged relationships through our willing humility. Jacob bows in humility seven times, which is ironic because the blessing that Jacob stole from Esau was that the nations would bow before Jacob. Now Jacob bows before Esau. His response is nothing, sh Esau's response is nothing short of divinely inspired forgiveness. 400 men he's brought with him, an army he's brought with him, and he responds in this way to his brother. This is a work of God, just like the prodigal father responded to his lost son. Romans 12, 18, God says that he wants us to live peaceably with all people as far as it depends on us. And God gives the gift of reconciliation when we trust him and take the first steps in humility. And that's the hard part about biblical reconciliation. It requires that we apologize. We hope to fix broken relationships by saying we're sorry, but the meeting of Jacob and Esau shows us that true reconciliation comes by taking the first step in humility as we trust God to heal hurt relationships. For many years, my father and I were estranged. We had a very cold relationship. He felt that I had uh, treated him badly. I felt that he had treated me badly. We talked on occasion only because of my mother. But after I became a Christian, there came a time when I sensed it was right. My father was there, and I approached him, and I apologized to him. Like Jacob, I was shocked because my father literally melted with emotion because the weight that he had been carrying over this estranged relationship was suddenly lifted from him. I had no idea he cared that much. And we fell on each other, and he wept and I wept, and it was the first time father and son had embraced in 20 years. God brings reconciliation. It's a divine gift from him to us to heal the relationships in our lives. 
We all have relationships that need healing in our lives, and God may, maybe has this gift for you this Christmas. Well, the second gift we see is Jacob's recognition, the recognition of the source of his blessing. Esau asked Jacob about all the gifts. He calls them company. In the Hebrew, it's a, it's a word play that, that Esau is using to indicate that he, he doesn't need Jacob's gifts. And he says it, it, as much. He says, I, don't, I, I have plenty, brother. Keep what you have for, you, for yourself. In, in contrast to Esau's view, notice Jacob's words in verse 11. He says this, please accept my blessings that is brought to you because God has dwelt graciously with me. Again, we see that Jacob is changing. The whole conversation, throughout this whole conversation, Jacob mentions God three times. Esau, not once. And his hesitation to accept Jacob's gifts says that the blessings Jacob treasured enough to steal really didn't matter because Esau, the mighty hunter, has succeeded in his strength alone. He says to Jacob, basically, brother, I never needed the blessing you stole. I didn't need it at all. I've got what I've got by my mighty works. You see, Esau believes that he is his own God. And on the other hand, Jacob, for Jacob, God has become the central reality in his life. On his tangled journey of struggling and succeeding with men, Jacob has come to realize that his family and his wealth are not the result of his clever schemes. It's the result of God's blessings that he didn't earn, nor did he deserve. Esau never learned that lesson. This would be our good, uh, good fill-in for our second fill-in. God's gift to recognize that he is the source of our blessings deeply changes how we view and respond to all events in our lives. Recognizing God as the source of our blessings deeply changes how we view and how we respond to the events in our lives. Esau believed that his wealth was from his efforts. Jacob understood that God was the source of his abundance, of his wealth. And recognition of this truth is supernatural. It is a gift from God that changes people deeply because suddenly we recognize it's God who gives and sustains our lives. It's God who brings the rain and the sunshine. It's God who causes the generation to roll. It's all of God's goodness working in his creation. This gift of recognition brings contentment in our material blessings at whatever ever level God gives them because we know it's all temporary. One day, we will all shuffle off this mortal coil, as Shakespeare's Macbeth 
uh, or Hamlet says. And we'll leave behind all of the noise and the confusion of this messy world and all the things that we have accumulated. Because it's well said, there is no need for a trailer behind a hearse. Recognizing God as the one who brings all things into our lives gives us the peace that passes all understanding that Paul speaks of in Philippians 4. And this peace is supernatural. It's a peace that brings joy, a, a steady calm in our lives that allows us to face not only the daily grind, but the difficult trials that God allows in our lives to refine us as he works to conform us to the image of Christ. I have a friend back east who, at the height of his career, the height of his health, and with a growing family, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Karen? Yesterday, his wife posted a picture along with this comment. While powering through biweekly rounds of chemo, Jeff recently completed this painting of our family he titled First on the Beach. That's Jeff on the left. And the news of his cancer was devastating to everyone who knew him, especially to him, and it always is. But the deep trust in the ultimate goodness of God has given Jeff a peace throughout this process. As he's going through the difficult time, he has this peace of God by recognizing it's all from God that allows him to just calmly sit and paint. Even a better example was John Thylate standing up here this morning. As Marie faces the trial, John faces it with her. Kenny and Nina are facing the same trial. But there's a peace where... He, God allows him to read Psalm 23 in recognition that all of these things are from God. It's a gracious and special gift that enables us to say that regardless of what we face, as Paul says in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's a precious gift from God to recognize that he is with us in every trial because he's promised. I will what? Never leave you or forsake you. There's a special supernatural gift, this gift of recognition. Verse 17 then opens our third gift, the gift of restoration. Now, Esau wanted Jacob to join him down in Seir. Um, but when Jacob was in Haran, God said, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob knew that God would restore him to his homeland, and he offered several weak excuses, and eventually Esau and his men depart. Now, after they leave, Jacob turns west into Canaan, as this map shows. It's a bit of an eye test. But he goes to Sukkoth first, and he builds a house and some shelters for his livestock there. Now, we're not told how long he stayed in Sukkoth, 
But later he moved a short distance to Shechem, and there he bought a piece of land and he settled. Now, 20 years earlier, God had promised Jacob at Bethel after he was, had fled his murderous brother and had been con continually cheated by the deceiving uncle, God had appeared to him and given him a promise. Now, Jacob has been protected and reconciled and recognizes all of these things. He's found peace with both his brother and his uncle, and his family and his flocks are surrounding him, and Jacob has been restored by God's grace. But not quite. Because God had said, at Bethel, and Jacob had vowed at Bethel, he said in Genesis 28, 20, then Jacob made a vow, a vow, saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone at Bethel which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and all that you give me I will give a full tenth to you. It's his vow. He is going to build a house for God at Bethel. If God does what? If he goes with him, he gives him bread to eat, clothing to wear, so I come together in my father's house in peace. All of these things God has been faithful to give to Jacob. Now, Jacob's vow is that he will build a house at Bethel. But he doesn't. You would think that Jacob would fulfill his prom promise, but he stopped short. Bethel was only 20 miles south of Shechem. But it wasn't Bethel. Instead of building a house for God, he built a house for himself. Two of them. And whatever his motivation, Jacob's failure to keep his vow is going to cost him dearly, as we'll see in chapter 34. Because with God, almost obedience is never enough. Full obedience is the requirement. Fortunately for Jacob and for us, the story doesn't end with his failure. Although it wasn't at Bethel, verse 20 tells us that Jacob built an altar at Shechem, and he called it El Elohi Israel. El Elohi Israel. El is the Hebrew word for God. El Elohi Israel is Hebrew for the mighty creator God is the God of Israel. Not Israel the nation, Israel the man who is also called Jacob. It's Israel renamed by God after the wrestling match at Peniel. Now, earlier, when Laban and his men had caught up with Jacob, when Jacob had fled from Haran with all of his family and flocks, uh, the two of them sealed a peace covenant by swearing on the name of their God after they had sorted out all the accusations. And Laban swore by the God of Israel and the God, or the God of Abraham and the God of Laban. But when it was Jacob's turn, he swore 
by the fear of his father Isaac. His oath reveals that Jacob had not then fully embraced the faith of his grandfather, Abraham. But now, building this altar to the mighty creator God, the God of Israel, in other words, my God, Jacob has called on the name of the Lord. And here he opens God's greatest gift. gift of redemption. He's been reconciled with Esau. He recognizes the source of his blessings. He's been safely restored to the land God promised, and now he calls upon the name of the Lord and receives the righteousness that brings redemption. His almost obedience will have consequences in his earthly life, but his failures will not change his position as redeemed. We pound this message over and over again because it's the hope we have. Our position by faith is justified. Our progression is gradual with one step forward and three steps back sometimes, but our progression never changes our position. And by Jacob calling on the name of the Lord here, the God of the creator God, the God of Israel, Jacob has now received the righteousness just like Abraham received in Genesis 15, 6, where it says Abraham believed God and he credited him with righteousness. Jacob's failures going forward are going to be immense and it's going to have maximum impact on his life, but it will never change his position as being saved by God, declared righteous by faith alone, even as God will continue to work in his life. His almost obedience will have consequences, but God gives this greatest of gift to deeply flawed people throughout history because he will not fail in his promise to deliver all of the children of Eve by bringing her off through the chosen line leading to the first advent of the Savior who is Jesus Christ. Here's our last fill-in. The greatest gift is salvation by faith in Jesus, given by grace from the Father and secured by the power of the Holy Spirit. Cured by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the greatest gift because it brings all of the other gifts. The gift of reconciliation comes by this gift. Ephesians 2 says, but we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enemies at God. We were under the wrath of God. We were lost like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us in Christ, has made us alive 
By faith you are saved. And he has raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places so that in the coming days the surpassing greatness of his glory may be known. The reconciliation has occurred. The, the recognition has occurred because the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the truth that we have here. And our eyes are open to recognize that these gifts really are ours by faith alone. The restoration has occurred. In Ephesians 3, Paul says that we, the Gentiles, were alienated from God, separated from Him, and we were not partakers of the covenant of grace. But God has now reconciled us, breaking down the wall of division so that now there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. We are all one in Christ. We've been restored, and now we have the inheritance that Jesus has won for us, and he will share with us because he is our wonderful brother who has come and redeemed us. All of these gifts are under the sort of the umbrella. It's Jesus and the gift of redemption is, is it's the cornerstone and it's the capstone of all of these other gifts. And this gift of redemption is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. The gift is the good news of the gospel. It's that Jesus died for sin in accordance with the scripture, was buried, and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And as the God-man, the obedient son, from all eternity came willingly, leaving behind the glory of heaven for a manger in Bethlehem. And with joy, he perfectly obeyed all of his father's expectations. And with joy, he faced a cruel death at the hands of his creatures. But with joy, it was knowing that his death was sufficient to pay for the sins of all who believe in him. And by that faith alone, the father, by his grace and through the power of the spirit, has given every believer the righteousness that Jesus earned and is adopted by the Father into his family and his kingdom. This is the greatest gift. How can we not have joy at Christmas at this first advent when we understand the impact of all of this? It's divine, it's supernatural, and it's eternal. Jesus is our only hope because we're all guilty of almost obedience. Like Jacob, our failures will plague and distress us in this life, but God has promised that he will continue the good work that he has begun in us until we are home with Jesus Christ, until we're complete in his eternal kingdom of the Son. This gift of faith the unbelieving scholars with impressive education credentials have not received. So they miss the glory of Christmas that marks the infinite God becoming one of us. So we can't get angry with them. We grieve for them. We neither lament for the consumerism nor the militant secularism that tries to cleanse the public spaces 
of all of the things Christian. We pray for those who refuse to celebrate the truth of Jesus' virgin birth because they too haven't received the greatest gift. And without the greatest gift, you can't recognize it. You're not reconciled, and you won't be restored. So instead, we let our joy shine, and we pray that they too will receive God's greatest gift, the faith in Jesus that brings redemption. And we're privileged to wrap these presents for God by telling others the good news, that Jesus is born, as the, as the carol says. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the words of Christ, so we proclaim Christ so that people can call upon the name of the Lord and receive the greatest gift of all. So the crush and the busyness and the traffic and the commercialization and the unbelief, they don't dampen our joy. We focus on the Advent celebration. We focus on the prophecy candle, the Bethlehem candle, the shepherd's candle, the angel candle. And when we gather next Sunday, we're going to light the white candle representing the pure Lamb of God who has come and taken away the sin of the world. The God who has promised to keep us and wrap us in his power until the day of Christ Jesus. The simple ritual of Advent, it points us to God's greatest gift. It's Christ in his first Advent and the promised Savior when he returns in his second Advent to make all things new. This is why Christ is Christ. Let's pray.